Well, hello there. My name is Matt Lebon. I'd like to welcome you to the Foodscaper podcast, where we have conversations with edible landscape professionals. Yeah, I'm a big fan of apples. And so I like to see, you know, when there's a really old apple tree growing on the side of the road and it's loaded and no one's watering it. I'm just, I get really excited. I'm like, oh, let's try to propagate that one. These are folks making their living, designing, installing, maintaining, food producing, ecological landscapes for clients, for a living. And we're back with episode two to continue hearing the journey of hatchet and seed. If you are listening to this and have not heard episode one, would highly encourage you to start there. And with that, we will jump back into our conversation with Solera Goldwyn. I'm curious before we move on though, because I want to hear a little more about just what what your home garden like means to you at a at a personal level as well as you know it sounds like literally just it's a physical space for storage of things for your business but if it's if it's played an important role in your business in any other way yeah um for me it's the past i would say yeah since being with taylor the past 10 years learning about growing food and how to preserve it um, in the household, how to eat it, what to do with it, different ways of, um, you know, uh, different ways of preserving, you know, one type of vegetable. Um, that has been really influential, uh, and important. Um, and to be able to grow things out in the garden and then be able to share that knowledge with clients is really helpful too um because yeah there's one you could like read about different species in a book or buy seeds at the store but if you don't know how to grow it or how to eat it it's hard to share that knowledge you know um so for me yeah i've been spending a lot of time growing and preserving food (laughs) yeah and trying to share that during the pandemic, that was kind of an interesting time for me um, because all of a sudden our daughter was home from school, like the schools all shut down. Um, and my, I was teaching um, in a permaculture course, a couple of them, and both of those uh, contracts shut down. So yeah, just by default, even, even though the business didn't need to shut down, my role really changed at that point. Um, and so that's when I really kind of dove more into food growing. Um, and that, you know, it's, it seems to be such a, um, almost gendered kind of thing, you know, but yeah, like I, I was the one that was home and, and Taylor was out. Um, cause luckily we could still work because we're working outside. Um, And our clients were coming in droves because, you know, everyone was all of a sudden at home and wanting, now they have money to put into their yards and, you know, thinking about food security. And so all of a sudden we're really busy. Um, Yeah. And that was such an interesting time 
as to, you know, to be the, the mom, uh, wife (laughs) role and really like, like dive into food growing. So I grew this huge garden, um, at a client's site and like, yeah, that between I was only going there and our garden and just food growing the whole time and preserving and giving food away. And, um, yeah, it was an, a really interesting experience for me, uh, you know, as a, as a woman to, to be in that role. And I know so many women there like that, that happened to them too. All of a sudden, like your full-time mom, you know, when you're like the day before you're trying, like I had all these contracts lined up and, um, I, I know it's not just a female experience that pandemic, but, um, it's definitely, I noticed for me, it really, uh, it affected me in, in different ways. And, um, yeah, kind of like spurred me to thinking about scale and, and feeding, you know, community with local food and what does that look like? And, and so kind of like pushed me into this side contract that I'm doing now just with the university. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story. I think it's really interesting to just hear the how, how you weave it all together and, and how that personal story is playing a role in furthering the work that you all are doing and in the mission behind it all. Yeah. Yeah. Your home garden. One of the things I notice is that you all have very unique raised beds. And <laughs> I was hoping, you know, with that, we could transition to talking about you know, garden beds a little bit and some of the different techniques that you all use, but maybe we could, we could start with your home garden and how you all built those beds. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there were the layout of the raised beds, uh, there were beds there in the past, they were made from brick. And so they were at ground level and our garden, our backyard floods in the wintertime. So we're on the downslope of the hill um, and all of our upslope neighbors they don't have perimeter drain hookups so um, their stormwater just flows into our backyard and like the first few years that we were here it was just like the basement would flood and there would just be this um, you know surge of water across the yard and we're like oh my god how are we going to grow food here it's just a lake in the back so yeah um, raised beds you know we're definitely um our plan um and so yeah those are the cedar rounds as well and they're pinned together with rebar so you drill a hole through them um and then bang the rebar into them um to kind of pin them together um and yeah they're uh it's too high so um you know one on top of the other and it it's, you know, a really good amount of growing space. Now the roots are mostly out of the high water table and we can grow in the winter time. Um, our situation is more that we don't, we hardly get any light back there just because our house, house is in the South of the property. So there's a big shadow back there, but yeah, if we get our winter vegetables established, you know, before uh, the light disappears, then we can, be eating out of there all winter. Another thing that we did, uh, which uh, I'm sure you know that we use a lot of, is wood chips. So we, um, yeah, there were 
uh, pavers back there that we removed because the water was just sitting right on top of that. And we removed the pavers in some places in the pathways we dug down and then added the chips on top. And so you can go out there like last year. I don't know um, if you heard, we had like this crazy rain event, um, a crazy flooding event. And on the mainland there were highway washouts and it was just ridiculous. But I, I went out, I was like, what's our yard doing, (laughs) you know, during this crazy biblical rain event. Um, and yeah, you could walk out there. No problem. It was, there was not standing water. It was amazing. Those wood chips are incredible. Um, so, yeah, really, uh, you know, we push the wood chip kind of thing hard around here. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Here in St. Louis, we had a, a biblical rain event uh, maybe about six or eight weeks ago now. And uh, Oh, wow. Yeah, we had 10 inches in a oh, uh, yeah. several-hour period. It was, oh, yep, quite, quite the bonanza. Yeah. Yeah. And so it is, it's interesting to like, yeah, get that feedback from your landscapes when certain things like that happen or like during, we had that heat dome last year where it was in, into the, you know, 41 Celsius, Mm. um, year, which is really rare, super rare. That's way Um, over a hundred degrees, I think. Yeah. 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 Um, it was just, everything was fried, but our garden was okay. So yeah, it's neat. It is neat to see that, um, that the ecosystems we're creating are more resilient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One thing I'll point out that I have found to be really effective in our work is, is essentially what you described with those wood chip pathways, but I haven't really seen this so much in the literature you know, in all the the permaculture books and whatnot, which is basically like what we call a walkable swale. So it's Mm. it's just where like in any context, it can be raised beds or it can be in an edible perennial landscape where we dig out the beds and then backfill them with sometimes like a lot of wood chips and meaning a lot, meaning many, many inches. And, um, and it, yeah, it's this incredible like water sponge and, you know, if you dig the the pathway out intentionally, you can move water across the landscape. I don't, I don't know if that brings yeah. up anything interesting for you, but I'm curious if you all have like honed that technique at all. Oh yeah. We, yeah, we do that quite a bit. Um, do you have well, a name for it? Because- <laughs> no. <laughs> Wood chip pathways. I don't know. Yeah. Um, we, um, because part of the thing, even if you don't dig it out first, if you're just adding the wood chips and most often it's either a raised bed or a mounded bed. And then over time you, as the maintenance, you come back and you add mulch to the, the, mounded beds and wood chips so you are building up over time um yeah we notice this in our backyard it's like every year we'll bring more wood chips just to top up um because things sink and you know the biological activity is happening and plants are eating up you know stuff and so the levels sink um so the maintenance part is to top up um but then over time you're actually like really increasing the level, um, of, of the 
ground, <laughs> I guess. Um, and yeah, you're creating this incredible biological sponge, um, you know, the fungal network, um, yeah, water storage, our landscapes need less water than an average landscape, um, definitely. And that, yeah, holds on to moisture uh, in the drought. And then in the winter, it creates, you know, there's lots of air pockets, so you can actually walk on the pathways and, and things like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, have you read Linda Chalker Scott from uh, Washington State University? She has a little pamphlet on on uh, wood chip wood chip gardening, and it's really good. All yeah, right. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, we definitely yeah. we wood chip all of our pathways when we can. You know, some folks want gravel. Yes, um, but we, we totally. our preference is the wood chips. Yeah, for sure. Cool. So you've got. The wood chip pathways are your go-to. The double high cedar rounds are yeah. such a unique style that you're using at your house. One of the other methods you've mentioned several times is ferro-cement. And I'm hoping you can kind of define what that is and um, some of the qualities that you like about it. Sure. Yeah, uh, ferro cement. It's it's like reinforced cement, I guess. The ferro part is the the metal, I guess, that you're using um, in the mix. So you, uh, well, you you would know now that you've created them. But you, um, we use a diamond lath, uh, this, these metal sheets, and cut them to the size that you want the height of your bed to be, um, and then you pin that just temporarily with rebar um, and do a, a cement mix, um, uh, sand and uh, concrete together, um, and then plaster it on. Um, and you can make really, they're, they're more organic uh, shapes because the cement needs, or the, the beds need a curve in them to be super strong. I, I don't know. I sometimes I think like, oh, could we try to do one that's like with like a square? <laughs> mm. I think you know that that's kind of where my my next thought is. Or yeah, our uh, one of our crew members, Alex, he's got lots of ideas about how he wants to do different pharaohs nights. So he'd be a good person to talk to about it. But yeah, I think they're so beautiful. They're incredibly long lasting. They look like cob, um, yeah, but you. Yeah, but you wouldn't be able to use a a cob, you know, a cob mix for a garden bed because it would just fall apart. Um, so these, yeah, they can be out in all the weather. Um, Taylor built one for his sister out um, in Alberta, where they get you know minus forty, and and it's holding up. It's been fine for two years now, um, and so they're incredibly durable. They give you that depth that um, people, you know, you're looking for with the raised beds. Um, yeah, they can be different colors, which is quite nice. Uh, we have like some that are yellow or red or lots of terracotta. Um, yeah, I just love them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're they're insanely beautiful. I feel like they elevate the aesthetic of of raised bed gardening to a whole new level. Yeah. What, what are your words of like? 
if you're inspired by this ferro cement stuff, like know this before you get into it. <laughs> it's hard on your back. <laughs> <laughs> know that <laughs> to make them is hard on your back. It takes several days. Um, I don't know if that, if you guys did it the same way, but yeah, you need to do, um, you know, one coat at a time and let the coats dry, um, over several days. So oftentimes, um, it'll be like a half day. Yes. If you're planning like for your crew to be doing it, you'll need something for them, you know, in, in one part of the day that's different, (laughs) maybe, um, this is just some, you know, the things that I have noticed when our crew is doing fair cement is like, they'll do it in the morning and then they'll need something for the afternoon. Um, and that will be over several days. Um, what else to know about it? It's probably a good idea, uh, to wear a, a mask, like, uh, probably N95 while you're mixing. Um, just, you know, there's particles you want to take care of your body. Um, and there's, yeah, like you can use a, a cement mixer to mix. We haven't done that. We mostly just mix in, in the buckets. But um, I think there's there's lots of room for taking, you know, ferro cement <laughs> um, work to different levels for sure. Um, and, yeah, people use them. in like in South America, people built things out of ferro cement all the time so it's it's not a new technology um and like i said we learned from um ann and gord baird and gord has an amazing uh youtube video on on how to make them i recommend watching that yeah that was definitely part of our homework assignment when we were learning from you all on how to build these beds um yeah which we just did at custom foodscaping and yeah, I, I just seeing all the different contexts you all have built those, I think it really, it kind of does like unlock something, um, at least for me in thinking about just like the possibilities of hardscape and organic shapes. And it's really mm-hmm. even got me thinking just a lot about the ways we could be more creative with like metal edging, which is a more expensive or more, less expensive, quick way of bending you know, metal that's going to be really long lasting as well. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Or also like pond, like smaller pond features. Sometimes I think about that. Like if, like you could line the bottom, um, and do a round kind of pond out of ferro cement. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of, um, things you can do with it. And then, yeah. Uh, you know, when you can add benches that I love that. And that our crew's done that a couple in a couple different places where there's a bench kind of built in. Um, and actually we have one in our backyard too, where the bench is built into the ferro cement bed. And, oh, that's so yeah. Cool. It creates, um, incredible space. There's, we built one over at uh, a school, a local school and yeah, it's always in use now kids sitting on there. So yeah, it's great. Yeah. I'll just, also add that I think it's really interesting and relevant that you're talking about these benches because that's been one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about is like, how do we enhance the foodscape so that it does more than just grow food? Like, can we add seeding? Can we add 
other, I hate to sound like, you know, salesy about it, but it's kind of like the upsell in yeah. mentality of just making the the job as full as possible and giving the client as many options as possible within our wheelhouse. Yeah, I would say that that's something that has really changed for us too is, um, you know, and it's so it's so funny, but I think it's because we're just so busy and to think about seating in the landscape was like not even, it didn't even like come into our minds, you know, um, initially, but then we would go back to these landscapes and there'd be like the client would have put chairs out or something like that benches or chairs. And we'd be like, Oh yeah. Like, Oh yeah. You can actually just like sit and enjoy (laughs) your yard. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think that that's something um, that we're, we've been doing more of lately is incorporating more, uh, seating and gathering spaces within the landscape, mm-hmm. building so, that in. Yeah. I love seeing that. And so, okay. Ferro cement seems like one of your go-tos. Um, what are the other ways that y'all have experimented with or, or mastered, I should say, um, raised bed, raised bed production? Yeah, these Galvalume beds are really, um, you know, what we're doing more of lately. Um, And so the, yeah, it's um, by the big sheets and then they're, they they cut them um, to whatever height and length um, that you want. They're put together and then there's a decking board on top so you can sit there or um, place something there as well. And it's not that hard, uh, super sharp edge uh, and it just looks so much better so that's definitely um kind of our our latest most used uh, raised bed right now is the galvalum beds yeah and actually uh they the crew built some really beautiful accessibility beds over um here at this new community garden that we helped to install and they're beautiful, I would say, um, you know, and they're quite tall. Some of them, I think, are like three and a half feet, maybe even four feet tall. Um, and <clears throat> so really good for uh, folks in wheelchairs or with walkers. Uh, you can just stand there and garden. Uh, and it's, it's uh, yeah, it's been, that one's really, really cool to see as well. Mm-hmm. Any other types of beds that you feel like are unique to your all's work? Huh. <clears throat> I don't know. I think that that's kind of, those are the, the three hatchet and see yeah. <laughs> that we've got going on here. Yeah. We don't do a lot of um, just like traditional standard cut lumber um but some not not very many but definitely some yeah yeah Yeah. and and i mean we've talked a lot about hardscape things here and i think that that's part of what makes your aesthetic so beautiful but you all are also you know working a lot with plants i mean it seems like you've done a lot of orchard projects and you certainly have done um quite a bit of you know garden gardening it itself um mm. 
I would love to transition mm -hmm. us a little bit to the orchard course that you all uh, put out last year. I saw that and I was really intrigued and I feel like folks in this community would, would love to learn more about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so that was definitely Taylor's baby. He, he put that together last um, winter with Alex, our uh, one of our crew members again, who's really an amazing videographer. Um, and so I, I think, it, I can't remember how many hours it is. I think it might be like four to six hours long of uh, fruit tree education. And yeah, it's, um, it's really great for people that want a deep dive into backyard management of fruit trees uh, less so than like bigger orchard scale, although a little bit is touched on, I would say in that, but, uh, lots of tours with Bob Duncan as well. He was a big part of that, um, course. Um, and so we, you get, you know, to see his, uh, amazing suburban nursery fruit <laughs> demonstration site. Uh, he's growing, uh, pawpaws and, oranges and loquats oh and all kinds of things it's just it's just incredible at his place so um there's lots of footage from there and he's trialing all these different figs that he's brought back from um uh, greece and turkey and italy and so uh yeah you really <clears throat> get up close and personal with all of that um yeah and i would say it's it's probably you know pretty uh geared towards folks in the pacific northwest but there would be lots of information there for folks all over north america definitely yeah the pacific northwest seems like it's a real just one of the maybe like the leading geographic area for a lot of this work i mean i know before finding out about you guys i had been following the seattle urban farm company and oh yeah they're just incredibly inspiring as well. Um, but kind of back to the fruit trees, I'm curious if there's any, like, what are your, I mean, you mentioned the medlar before, and I'm just curious, <laughs> like, are there other <clears throat> plants, trees that you all love that are kind of unique and well-suited to our particular industry as edible landscapers? Yeah. I mean, I love figs, of course, and the, you don't, you only need one. And that's the other thing about medlar, like certain, certain trees, <clears throat> fruit trees, you only need one. Uh, it doesn't need a pollinator. So, <clears throat> um, that's good for, excuse me, smaller backyard type things. So I, I think that's something to consider if you're designing for someone else is, okay, maybe they want apple an apple tree one apple tree but unless the neighbors have apple trees that will cross pollinate you're not going to get a, a lot of apples so yeah think thinking of things like that you know even though our climate sounds so dreamy <clears throat> not getting summer rain makes things really challenging and so i've noticed you know we put in a community orchard kind of close by to where we live <clears throat> about nine years ago and um the we put in some chestnut trees and they're really struggling and I don't know why I'm not sure if it's the not getting enough irrigation or what you you would think that they would be okay without that but 
yeah, just certain things and pests as well. It makes it a cha- challenging um, to grow fruit. <laughs> I, I, I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from growing fruit trees. I think it's just that uh, you need to consider what you're planting. And, and another thing around here um, about the drought um, is that when you plant a dwarf tree, it really needs irrigation because those roots aren't going down at all. So, so I like, yeah, I, I really, I tend towards the bigger tree on a bigger landscape that is more resilient or, you know, that has that stronger rootstock. Um, but yeah, I, I'm a big fan of apples. And so I like to see, you know, when there's a really old apple tree growing on the side of the road and it's loaded and no one's watering it. I'm just, I get really excited. I'm like, Oh, let's like, try to propagate that one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, I really love gummies. Uh, do you guys plant those as well? Gummies? We do. Yeah. And so I love them for their beauty and their early spring flowers, <clears throat> not the best, um, uh, cash crop, like, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to sell gummies is really hard because they just start to like turn to juice right away they're really good fresh eating and they get huge if you're not pruning them but because they're a nitrogen fixer like it's a plant that I really would encourage and there's um there's some studies out there about how having gummies in amongst your fruit trees increases the fruit production um and I'm not sure if that's from the nitrogen or from the bees because they just you know they're they're flowers just bring all the bees um so yeah i really like those they're super pretty in the winter too because they they kind of have a red bark on them Mm. i love mulberries as well again not the easiest to sell (laughs) if you're kind of going on that road but uh great hydrated um so delicious i love the white white mulberries because um you know they're a little bit easier to uh, plant near hardscaping, <laughs> if you know what I mean. They don't Meaning, stain yeah, everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they're really good. Also, a wildlife treat. Yeah, here, um, definitely need to consider netting. And, you know, uh, the birds can be really quite voracious around things. <clears throat> I'm not sure if you've come across that where you are, but, um, you know, in a small kind of backyard setting, like going back to David and Gwen's, their um, their blueberry kind of hoogle swale that we built. Uh, over the past few years, they've been netting that and getting way more fruit. And so I think that that's kind of part of when you're thinking about adding in fruit, um, fruit trees, berry bushes, to design things so that you can get protection around them. You can get netting even in some places we would like create the frame for the netting to go on um, and keeping, keeping fruit trees small, smaller um, and fruiting, I think. Yeah. Mm. Just all of those things to consider, but yeah, I love fruit. <laughs> Do you have a favorite netting that you'd like to use? Uh, we use that pro tech netting sometimes, um, especially because we have this pest here on the coast called spotted wing drosophila and it is a fruit fly that um is uh like just going crazy around here um yeah we have it here in the eastern united states too you you have it too okay yeah so 
it's pretty new. I think it's, you know, hasn't been around more than 15 years and here. So, um, yeah, it lays its eggs and soft fruit. And so, yeah, you really do want to have that, um, that, that netting protect, protect netting, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah we it's tried so expensive. I, that's why I asked, yeah. you know, and it doesn't seem like there's yeah. like one brand that's kind of emerged as the market leader on that, at least from my research and. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, ProtectNet I, I know is used very commonly on vegetable farms and as insect yeah. netting over crops, but I hadn't seen it as a fruit tree protector as well. So that's great to know. Yeah. You know, um, Bob Duncan, he has these amazing kind of open greenhouse type things. So it's like the, the top is like a greenhouse top and then the sides are actually this protect netting um where he has certain fruits fruit trees on the inside like his cherries i believe are in there as well so he's got this full huge massive greenhouse with this netting on it to try to keep the drosophila away but yeah it's it's complicated it's so complicated These... mm -hmm. <laughs> well yeah. I, I applaud all the effort that you all are making and it's just one of the many slices of inspiration that you all have have given us. Ah, um, uh, yeah. We are getting close on time here, so I, I want to transition towards the end with you. Yep. I would love Great. to, there were just like a few questions I had lined up. I just want to hear because I just get such great energy and, and inspiration from you all. Um, I would love to know, like about the culture of hatchet and seed as a company now that you all have a crew like is does anything come to mind for you that you feel really proud of and part of part of hatchet and seed culture that um yeah would feel good to share with other foodscaping companies we're so busy <laughs> i think that that's one thing that i would encourage other people is to try to build in more time off together maybe yeah um, share food and, um, be inspired by each other's well-being. Uh, this year we've really tried to kind of, uh, up our <laughs> business, um, you know, platform a little bit by, uh, making sure everyone has, um, benefits like health benefits and yeah, just, um, you know, those slow things that you do as a business owner to try to make working um, for the company fun and better. Um, yeah, and I think, like, we often will have interns work with us from different horticulture colleges. They'll come for a couple weeks at a time, and, and that's always such a joy and kind of re-inspires us, I know um, me and Taylor and our crew to to have that kind of young, fresh energy um, come in and and just like that to be re-inspired and um, yeah, that's really helpful. I would say if if any other companies out there can do that, tap in with uh, local horticulture schools where they you know are looking for work placement and just to inspire more people who are interested in horticulture to, to go down this road because, um, going back to that scale thing, I think we just, um, we really need to scale up. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So to 
any kind of um, encouraging other people. You know, it's not necessarily that you want to um, have someone else create the exact same business as you in the same city, um, but that there's enough work, you know, if like we need to transition uh, to a more um, environmentally focused society. So, so I think, yeah, like any, any of that that you can incorporate um, and yeah, our crew, they just, they work so hard. We're just so um, appreciative of them and, and everything they do for us. And, and we think that we're giving, you know, a, a decent job and um, variation. I think that that's one thing that our business uh, provides that, you know, other companies maybe don't is that every day it's something new. Um, yeah. We're always doing different things and, and new things. And I think that that keeps them interested. <laughs> yeah. That is something that I feel is really a wonderful joy of this work is the lack of repetition there. You can definitely resonate with that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like you're kind of um, like you're doing something important, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, Solera, I think that brings us to a close there. And I think we had a lot of, that was a lot of good nuggets. I was going to ask you another question, but you kind of answered it within that last one, just about um, mm-hmm. some of the things that you see happening in this industry and some of the your, your bigger goals. But it sounds like, you know, scaling up and having a larger ecological impact, building community, you know, taking mm-hmm. care of people who are on your crew and making sure that they are both having a, a meaningful experience and, you know, um, being supported financially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think like where I, um, have kind of veered off this past year is really wanting to kind of dive in at the institutional level for, um, creating food gardens. Um, and so I definitely want to leave people with that thought too, is that working privately is great. Uh, working for, um, you know, homeowners is super, we really, that's our, that's our bread and butter. We love that. But like, how do we actually create change on a bigger, bigger scale Um, and growing more food, but also, uh, yeah, engaging community in that food growing process. And so that, that, that's kind of where my hopes and dreams for our business as well lie is that, uh, you know, and it is happening on a small scale, but that um, we can kind of start to train more people, um, across, across levels, um, to, yeah, grow, grow more. Yeah. It sounds like you're saying like train them at at the educational kind of in, in, within the formal education model. Is that what you're alluding to there? Yeah, I guess so. Yes. That's definitely like Taylor and I have always talked about that. Um, you know, how to, similar to, to your summit or, you know, how, um, like just with horticulture colleges to, to, cause not everyone knows how to grow food, you know, it takes a while to learn, to learn those things, but how do we do that at, um, yeah, educational levels as well. Yeah. And, and my role, uh, at this university that I'm working with is to help them 
put in a kitchen garden, but also how to kind of intertwine that with education as well. So that's been a really interesting project too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Solera, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, to share your story. And um, I, I can imagine that this will inspire many who, who have a chance to hear it. Great. Thank you so much. Well, we will look forward to, to being in touch here and um, hopefully continuing to learn from you. Oh, uh, yeah. We're learning from you as well. Just love seeing all the work that you're doing and the, you know, not just with your crew, but uh, yeah, to try to amplify this type of work for, for all kinds of folks. <laughs>